Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Second Chance, a podcast that explores the notion of second chance, What is a second chance? Who deserves a second chance? And who decides whether someone is worthy of a second chance? My name is Raphael Rowe, and in this episode I talk with the mother of a man killed from one unprovoked violent punch. Her testimony is a reminder that one mistake can have dire consequences that can't be undone. One punch deaths are not unusual. In this case, it has caused endless suffering, yet both the victim and perpetrator believe a second chance can and has made a difference. So my guest today is Rachel. Rachel's not her real name because she wants to remain anonymous. Rachel wants to remain anonymous to protect the identity of her beloved son who died and other members of her family. I I think this is an extraordinary story of forgiveness or giving someone a second chance. Thanks for joining me, Rachel. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Can you talk me through what it was like when you received that call, the call that asked you to attend either the hospital or the police station, the moment you received the call that told you your son had been involved in a serious incident that ended up in his his life being taken away. Well, before the call, um, I I wasn't I wasn't feeling myself anyway. Um, I'd gone to bed, and I couldn't sleep. And I was on on the bed, on the floor, on the bed, on the floor. And then I had the phone call, and call it mother's instinct. I already I already knew. Um, when my son's girlfriend rang me to say that I needed to come, um, that something had happened. And I asked her on the phone as to whether he was dead. And she said, no, but call it mother's instinct. I already know. 
You mean the, the, the night of the incident or the day of the incident when you tried to sleep, is that something unusual that you were in and out of bed trying to sleep? Yes, and I, I believe, this is how I, I helped myself cope, that my son had come to tell me and pre-warn me that something had happened um, because we were very close. Um, I always knew when he was up to no good anyway or up to mischief. Just call it instinct. So you got the call from his girlfriend. So it wasn't the police. I mean, people often think it's the police or the ambulance that calls or the hospital that calls and sort of says we have a member of your family in the hospital and they've lost their life or it was his girlfriend. It was his girlfriend. Um, I I think they were still at the scene there um, while they were trying to help my son. And then because I live quite a distance away, obviously we... We had to make our way to to where we live, where my son lives. And that was a hard journey because I couldn't speak to my husband because I already knew that he wasn't alive. When his girlfriend called you, she'd said that he was still alive at that point. So when you were on the journey, you, you, you knew that your son may have died. But at that point, you were only told he was still alive. In my heart, I knew he wasn't here. Why? Why did you know? I don't know. I think it's just, you know, in in your heart when you've got that connection with a loved one and our closeness, we've always been very close. Like I say, I've always known when anything has gone wrong. Call it second instinct. I don't know. At that point, were you not... I'm not saying that you were accepting that he'd gone, but you knew your mother's instinct, heart. Were you not at that point deep down saying, stay alive, stay alive, stay alive? All the way to the journey to the hospital, um, I was going, please be okay, please be okay, please be okay. And my daughter was ringing me, giving me updates as we were travelling down. And I was praying that he would be okay. But when I got to the hospital and... My ex-partner met me at the door um, and he took me through to see my son who was being addressed in the hospital. He was in a, a standing frame and I looked at my son and the doctor moved away and bowed his head and I knew there was just there was just nothing that they could do for him at that point. When you say stand in frame, what do you mean stand in frame? Because he'd had a blow to his head and he, um, a bleed on the brain, they put him on in a standing frame that's upright to help, I don't know, with the drainage, I would imagine. But the look on the doctor's face told me that there was no hope, you know, and I already knew, I already knew. What did you do? When you entered the hospital, saw your son standing there, the doctor responded by dropping his head and walking away from your son. What did you do at that point? I I just kept looking at the machines around him, knowing full well that he wouldn't like being, because he'd had a lot of um, operations when he was very young, knowing that he wouldn't like any of the opera, um, the, the needles in him and all of this fuss that they were doing. Um, I think I must have just shut down. You know, when you're just sort of like, this is not happening to me, sort of thing. Looking from the outside in, I, I just I just couldn't believe that was what was happening to us as a family. 
Yeah, no. Had your son died at this point or was he still alive? I think he died at the scene, um, personally. Um, uh, the machine wasn't turned off until later in the afternoon and we were with him when he, he passed away. Um, but it was a long wait. You know, they have to go through different protocol to ensure that they're doing the right thing, you know, that, that he isn't going to survive. And also my daughter was told at the scene that her brother had non-survival injuries. We knew. So. What happened to your son? What was it that led to his injuries that led to his death? What can you share with me about that? Basically, he'd finished work. Um, he was waiting for a bus, ready to go home to his family. He'd only not long became a father, um, something that we'd never expected because he never wanted to be a dad. And he'd just left his workplace and he was waiting for the bus and some guy had gone onto the bus. I don't think he was aware what was happening on the bus and was hitting people. And, and as this boy man stepped off the bus, my son was waiting at the side and he hit him and he knocked him out cold and he fell to the ground, causing him to have um, a fatal injury. And the guy went, he left him there. The only blessing that we have um, is that one of his work colleagues had seen it happen and he was surrounded by his friends and the bus driver tried to do as much as he could for him, but there was just nothing he could do, just nothing. So the perpetrator was not known to your son. He was just a random individual attacking people on the bus and then your son off of the bus? My son was just waiting at the side probably with his earphones, listening to music, oblivious to what was going on. And obviously this guy was still in the throes of being angry and he just hit out and obviously hit my son with quite a amount of force because he knocked him out straight away. Can I just ask, Rachel, how you feel about talking about this? Because I can imagine how difficult it is talking about this. It's hard because um, every day I get up um, and it still doesn't feel true. It doesn't feel like it's happened. I have to pinch myself to tell myself each morning that he's not here. Um, And I miss him, like, ringing me and saying, hello, mom, you know, what you been up to? And And the fact that I was so far away that I couldn't get there sooner you know it took us nearly two hours to get to the hospital and my daughter was upset his partner was upset and I couldn't get there soon enough to console them either it's just I struggle every day um I'm a teacher and I'm supposed to I've lost all the enthusiasm because I'm tired and I just have no energy because the grief is so, it's so strong, you know. How old was your son when he died? He was 31. Um, he was always into mischief. Um, he was a character. He was very much loved by his work colleagues. 
his family. I've got to say, this is a little monkey. <laughs> you know, um, his work colleagues can often say that um, he used to get into mischief where he worked. He was a general dog's body and um, he used to do cleaning and they he cleared the outside of where he worked and they'd find him cleaning somewhere else opposite the, the place that he worked at. Um, and one story I love to tell is um, his manager said that he'd asked them to buy him, him a jet wash. And he went, why do you want us to buy you a jet wash for? He says, because I need to clean the outside of where I work. So they bought him a jet wash and he jet washed the outside of where he worked to clear the snow. And um, unfortunately, they were they were watching people come in after he jet washed it, after he cleared the snow because it was left with ice. And it was just his personality. He was just, he was just a star. How, how old is your daughter? My daughter, she's 30. And how long ago did this happen? How long ago did your son leave you? Just over two years ago. So it's still quite, well, I mean, it's not that any passing of time makes it easier, but it's still quite raw, quite recent. It is. And like um, I listened to a radio show on One Punch Kill the other day, just to see where they, where she was, the mother of the person that had been killed. And like it's nine years old and still they're struggling because I keep on looking at everybody and thinking, well, they seem to be moving on. They seem to be laughing. They seem to be enjoying their lives. And I just feel stagnant. I just don't feel I'm going anywhere, you know. But you are allowed to, aren't you? I mean, it it, it, it is a horrifying experience for you and only you know your pain as does your son's father as does his sister and other relatives Um, but you are allowed to move on you have to move on in his memory in whatever way you you see fit what happened to the man that that killed your son you say he he fled the scene after he'd hit your son what happened next the police started searching um, but I've got to give him credit, although I hate the word credit. He handed himself in the next day, whether that's because people knew him, because he was a local lad, um, but he handed himself in. So we were, we, we were unfortunate in what had happened, but at least at this point he, he was taking responsibility by handing himself in. You know, sometimes these things happen and they don't find the person that's that's done it, you know. Just talk me through what happened after he handed himself in, in terms of did he go to trial, did he plead guilty? We were asked to attend court where, you know, he, he had to give his name and during this time we were given liaison officers, family like liaison officers that took us through the process. And I have to say, at this point, the family liaison officer that we had was the most amazing police officer I've ever met. He was considerate, he was kind, he was supportive, and I owe such a lot to him, you know, because he took us through the process. Um, But obviously we went to see him at court, um, and then another date was set for 
when we were next to a pier in court. You know, um, and the wait was long um, because basically, you know, it happened two and a half years ago, but we had to wait at least three months for the trial. But they did an early plea because the trial was supposed to be at the end of the year. But they, they said he wanted to admit to what we call manslaughter um, because he wasn't willing to admit to murder because it wasn't the punch that killed him. It was the impact of him hitting his head. That was his defence, was it? His defence was that his punch did not kill your son, but the impact on the concrete floor caused the death. That sounds quite bizarre, a defence. but. Well, that's what he said, and his intentions weren't to kill. Do you accept that? Do you accept the fact his intentions were not to kill? I think when you go out and you're hitting people, no matter whether or not you're using a knife or whatever, if you are going out being violent, you've got to know that at some point somebody's going to be tragically hurt, you know, or, or killed. So violence has got to have some impact somewhere, you know. So he pled guilty to manslaughter, so there was no trial. They didn't want to put us through a trial, only to have a lesser sentence or, you know, um, than what he had or put us through any more anxiety than we were already feeling. And was that the advice that you were given by the prosecution and the police that in these sorts of cases where it's a one-punch kill type of case that generally what happens is the perpetrator is convicted of manslaughter or pleads guilty to manslaughter? Is that the sort of common theme here, which is why he pleaded guilty? I don't really know the answer to that. I think it's dependent on what sort of crime it is, you know. Um, I feel, feel that they felt that that was the best um, direction for us to go. So he pleaded guilty for manslaughter. Was you there when he was sentenced? I was. What happened? Basically, um, we went to the court. We were asked if we wanted to re- read about how we feel. I forgot what it's called. The impact statement. Impact statement. And yes, both my daughter and I read about how it had felt. Um, I kept looking across at him just to see what sort of person he was and he got his head hang, hanging low there was no expression on his face um, and when I was reading my impact statement his family was sat behind me and I could hear his partner crying and I think some sort of relative were really upset because obviously I've had a loss and they've had a loss as well you know um they're losing somebody that they love as well. It's so powerful to hear you say that because you have all the right in the world to be selfish in the sense, and when I say selfish, I say that in the nicest possible way, Rachel, because I don't, I can't think of another word to use, but it seems that you've taken into consideration his family because they themselves are not the perpetrators. They, like you, are the victim in this because of his action. He is the one person responsible for everything that's happened from the moment he hit your son. Yet here you are showing consideration for his girlfriend who you described crying behind you and and other relatives. 
Yeah, because I know that they had a young family themselves to be a single parent and have the, to have that responsibility of doing it on your own, you know. And also his children, my nan has got this saying, children don't ask to be born. They didn't ask for this to happen to them. My son's child didn't ask for that to happen either. So I can't lay blame on them or hold any grudges against them because it's their father that's the perpetrator here, you know. And what was the um, reaction from him as you read out the impact statement? Um, He just held his head down. He just held his head down. Is that because he was hiding from the reality or he was ashamed of what he'd done? I think he was ashamed for him, what he'd done to us, ashamed for his own family, that he'd let them down. Look at his family crying behind. Um, The judge and my family at the side, they were all crying as well. You know, we were... My ex-partner, he was sobbing in the corner, uh, my son's dad, and just seeing their faces and hearing them was just, it was just awful. And I can remember in front of me, one of the police officers sitting on the opposite side of the room, and I could see him wiping his face as well because the policemen that were working with us, they get to know us as a family and... They warm to you, you know, and they take you into their hearts and they feel uh, they feel for us as well, you know, um, I've got to say. It's so interesting. I spend a lot of time in prisons, in, in films that I make, speaking to murderers, rapists, all sorts of kinds of offenders. And so it's so powerful to hear the other side because I often speak to these prisoners about the crimes that they've committed. And they tell me of the murder or the manslaughter or the rape or whatever crime it is that they committed. And I interrogate why they did that, how and what they backgrounds come from. So I never get to meet the families, unfortunately, in these programs. Um, so it's interesting. And, and I'm grateful for you sharing your story. So what was this man sentenced to in the end? He got five years um, and he'll do two and a half years in prison. And then he will do two and a half years on licence. Um, and I wasn't happy with that sentence because um, five years is not enough. But whatever he was given was not enough. But to me, it still wasn't fair. Um, and I wrote to my MP who, because we were told we couldn't appeal. Um, but I felt like I needed to write and tell people that this sentence doesn't fit the crying, you know, Um so I wrote to my MP um, and then I think they sent it to the Court of Appeal and we only got back what we ex- we had anyway, you know. So we we didn't gain anything, but the fact that I expressed how I felt was important to me, you know, um, at that time. But did you understand that, that nothing came of the fact that you tried to influence by asking for a longer sentence, even if it was just to to help you come to terms with what your loss? I did understand because um, I've I've had some people that work within the justice system explain to me, you know, the justice system, 
as I, as we were going along, because where I were, one of the parents was an actual judge. So she explained to me the system, you know, and it's based on a lot of factors, you know. Um, I don't know, too many people in prison and all sorts of things, you know. You met the man who, who killed your son. How did that come about? Um, and tell me more about that. Well, at the end of the court hearing, we were he he we were handed a letter that he wrote to us, explaining how he felt, um, how sorry he was, his story of what had happened, and um, it took me a while. And I, I thought, and I was so angry. Um, I didn't read it for at least six months, and then one day, um, I thought, I've got to read this letter. You know, I've got to come to terms with how I'm feeling to try and justify what's happened. Knowing that letter was sitting there, knowing that the person who was responsible for the death of your son wanted to share with you his own thoughts and feelings and give explanation, but to know it was there and not go near it for six months must have been really tough for you. It was, but I don't think I was ready to listen to what he needed to say because I was so angry. And even at that point, I was still angry. But I needed to try and justify what was happening to my feelings and what kind of person he was, you know, to try and justify him as a person himself. It was a hard letter to read. um, And within that letter, I found that he, you know, it was just part and parcel of his life. He was part peer pressure from his brother to be tough and and whatever and he didn't have a very good upbringing either he had to learn to defend himself and stick up for himself you know as my husband would say he he was dragged up you know but it sounds to me that he was trying to justify his actions by blaming it and we hear this a lot by blaming it on their past i've heard these stories many times and, and and i have sympathy and empathy for a lot of these guys or girls who go on these roads of destruction based on their upbringing, um, it still sounds and feels unfair that uh, although he was apologising to you and trying to explain who he was and why he ended up in that very position where he hit your son that led to his death, I suppose that's all we've got. That's all you had to understand why at that moment he did what he did. Yeah, and like you've just said, like my son... Um, he had his struggles through life, you know, and he, and despite all his struggles, he turned out to be a kind, loving person and he would not hurt anybody and he knew violence wasn't the answer. So for me, it was hard for me to come to terms with that because everybody is accountable for their own actions, aren't they? They don't have to be that way. You eventually um, met the man responsible for the death of your son. Tell me about that. The restorative justice team came um, because when when we, it first happened, the police officers said that when it happened that uh, we might want to meet these people, this man that killed my son, and they kept feeding that through to us all the time because I think they want people to meet the offenders because I think they want them to see what they've done to the victims. 
Um, so hopefully they will change. Um, so yeah, for that. Um, but for me, the meeting was like, I was scared. I was nervous. I've never been to a prison before. Um, it's not something I ever expected to do. What persuaded you to do that? I mean, that's a huge decision, isn't it? I mean, I know lots of people take part in these restorative justice practices, but, and, and I've been involved myself from, from a journalist point of view, where I've gone with victims like yourself to prisons for them to confront, if you like, or to question, um, the individual who's responsible for the crime, whatever that crime might be. And I found that moment so powerful, so insightful and scary. And I was just the observer. You mentioned you were scared. You'd never been to a prison before. It's a huge decision. It, it, it is, but I needed to face him. I needed to tell him how he, what he'd done to my, me and my family face to face and looking in the eye and direct my anger that I was feeling to him and not because when everything happened I, I I shut myself off to everybody I knew everybody was there and I knew everybody was there to help me if I needed it but I had to isolate myself a little bit because as much as I wanted to help them I couldn't take on their grief because I I couldn't I couldn't face my own if you understand that meaning you know, um, I couldn't take any more responsibility than other than what I've got already. So you went to a prison to meet this man. What did you, if you don't mind me asking, what did you talk about? How did you get the answers you went in search of? I asked him why he left my son to die. But, you know, after he left him, you know, why did you walk away? Why didn't you attend to him? And he said he didn't realise what he'd done at that time. He didn't realise it was fatal. If he'd have realised it would had been fatal, he would have gone to attend to him. Yeah. Did you get the chance to ask him why he hit your son in the first place? I did, and he still can't answer that. He said it was just in a moment of anger. What was he angry about at the time? He'd gone onto the bus and got involved with something that was totally nothing to do with him and he was all fired up and as he came off the bus he like I say he hit my son he didn't realize what he'd done and from um because I've seen every there was a video made about how he felt about meeting me um and he said it was just seven seconds seven seconds and that's how how quick it was you know seven seconds and somebody's life has gone. So what about during the meeting? So you two are sitting there. You've gone along to get answers to questions. He's obviously agreed to meet with you to answer those questions. He also approached um, restorative justice because himself, because he, he asked to meet one of us, um, because he wanted to meet us to apologise and see how he could help support us in that way. What would you say was the most important thing that you took away from meeting the man responsible for the death of your son? The fact that he'd apologised, the fact that he admitted what he'd done, um, the fact that he wants to change. You know, when he comes out, he wants to he wants to focus on his family because he feels like not only has he let us down, he's let his family down. Um, and he doesn't want to be that violent person again. 
you know and for me if I've changed him as a person and my son's life has been given some meaning by somebody changing their ways to make a better world for other families other moms other other families that are losing their, their children my grandchild my daughter then that's the best thing for it you know it sounds to me, if I can use the term, you've given this man a second chance. You've decided that he is worthy of a second chance um, and he's embraced the opportunity to turn his life around based on meeting you and seeing the impact his actions has had on you and your family. What, why is that, Rachel? Why have you decided to give this man a second chance after what he's done to you? I wouldn't say I've given him a second chance. But one thing I do know of my son, he was a kind and loving man and he would have forgiven him. And that was the one, that's the one thing I have to believe in, that he would forgive him. And that gives, that gives my, my son some life, some meaning to me. I don't think I will ever forgive this man, but my son indirectly is giving him a second chance. The one thing at the meeting that he wanted to see was a picture of my son because he didn't even see his face when he hit him. And when he seen my son's face and him as a baby and it, him as an adult, you know, it, it really hit home that he'd got children at home as well, you know. And was that the beginning and end of the contact that you had with this man? Well, yes, but during before the meeting we had... Um, Obviously, we started justice facilitated meetings. He wrote us poems. Did he share any of these with you? Yes, I've got some here. Would you like me to read you one? I'm just amazed that you've embraced this whole situation in the way that you, you have. Um, but, but if it helps you come to terms with what's happened, knowing that this individual is turning his life around and that he is going to take on this second chance in life of being forgiven and helping others and showing remorse for what he's done. It's all got to be credit to, to you, Rachel, for being prepared to, to stand in front of this man who's done what he's done to you. But yes, please do read me the poem. He's labelled this with my son's name, so I'm just, I've just labelled it as the victim. And it says, I wish I could say so much about this man but I really can't say that I can. I didn't even know him. I knew nothing about him. So what gave me a reason to doubt him? He just got up among the madness and shouting in a situation I thought was helping. I wish he could just have stepped away. Then there's no doubt he would be here still today. I turned out and hit him once and that that's all it took. If only I thought at first, I knew it was a right book. Now that's all that's left of him are memories and pictures in a book. I am sure his life was much more worth that than that, and I would really do anything to take it back. I am not an emotional person, but believe me when I say deep inside I'm hurting. He had a daughter the same age as mine. And I think about all of, of all the time. It breaks my heart. I know that I have torn his family apart. I have to live with his guilt all my life. This has left me scarred with left scarred like a wound left from a knife. 
but people will say at least you were, you were still living and breathing. Well, isn't he with his family and is grieving? But please know daily that I pray for you. And if their heaven is above, then ask the Lord that I say for you, I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm not very good at reading, but, you know, it explains to you what there is some remorse in there. Yeah, without a doubt, it's a very powerful message, isn't it? And I'm impressed that you have the strength to read it. And I can imagine the comfort that you get from reading this, Rachel. Um, you know, there, there is a bit of me, just a very, very small bit of me that, that uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you've replaced your son with his perpetrator in the sense that everything that your son has lost this guy has to gain again his family his child and everything and and you're being so kind to give him that opportunity because you could if you wanted just like you said you don't really forgive him not yet anyway and may never get forgive him but you're prepared to give him a second chance in this way to, to rebuild his life but his family deserve that don't they his children deserve a dad and and if and if he comes out a better person, and, and as he said, he had a really bad upbringing. Maybe it's his time to break the vicious cycle, you know, and bring them up to be good citizens and learn that violence isn't the answer. You know, I don't want this to happen to anybody else. So if I can use him and make him accountable through what he's done, so be it. And I think you've done that brilliantly. Can I ask how your daughter and um, your ex-partner and um, your son's partner and their child are doing? How is everybody doing? Have they all embraced your, your giving this man a second chance in the same way? I don't think so. I know my son's dad won't. And the whole of the family are just in disbelief. You know, disbelief still. Um, I just imagine he's still here um, because I can't, I can't ever say goodbye because I can't. <laughs> I can't. People put letters in, in, in his coffin when, you know, to say how they feel. And I couldn't put that in his coffin because I can't say goodbye because I brought him into this world to, to look after him and keep him safe. But that's not to say that you haven't come to terms with the fact that he's no longer here in, in his physical form, because I suppose then it would be very traumatic and difficult um, if he wasn't able to accept the reality of the situation that your son is not here, even though you cannot say goodbye to him, that you can allow his memory and your memory of him and, and the things around you that remind you of him to live on. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? No, um, I, we've been, I've been having counselling and, um, the last ses ses session I had, the lady said there was five elements of grief and there's now a sixth one and what, and the sixth one, it, it really got me thinking and it's about finding meaning, finding meaning in my son's life, you know, and using that as a way to move on. And I think restorative justice has helped me to do that, you know, by meeting the offender, looking him in the eye. Because when we were in, in the meeting, he did actually look me in the eye. Um, and I did see an element of pain in his eyes for me to move on. 
And would you recommend restorative justice to other people in your situation? Yes, I think so, if they feel strong enough. Because I think these people do need to know what they've done to people, you know, because they're often discarded and left and they, they come out of prison and either they reoffend, well, they reoffend, you know, and they don't really understand the true depth of what they've done. For me, it's highly important, as I say, you know, for my son, for my family, and for me as a teacher to move on as a teacher because I love my job. I work with young children and you want better for them, you know, and I want to teach them with a, with a, with a passion, more of a passion because I've lost that. And are you able to use your your experience now, the, the loss of your son, are you able to use that experience in your teaching or in, as you say, your, your passion for teaching? Yes, because you can, you by teaching children, they have to take responsibility for what they've done, you know, and that's the whole point of restorative justice is take, making people take responsibility for the, what they have done to other people in order to change their way of thinking or change how they go about things, you know. It's it's the most important thing. And that's where it starts. Uh, And what age are the children that you teach? They're three to four. Oh, right. So that's an early start. But I suppose you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? You've got to get them thinking from an early stage, especially kids that come from a broken home, if that's the right term, or come from a disadvantaged background or... Or, or whatever the circumstances are, that could lead them into the type of character that your son's murderer, if that's the right term. Yeah, because when I first moved, went into teaching, I worked at um, a PRU, a, um, a referral unit, and I can remember all these children being labelled and, you know, we're trying to teach them right from wrong and... There was one particular child that I had a big soft spot for and he'd gone through the mill and not enough was done for him and he's gone on to lead a life of crying and it breaks my heart because something could have been done more to help him before he reached that point because he was a beautiful child with a lot to give if only it was just channeled in the right way, you know. And just finally, from me, Rachel, um, what what do you think the future holds then? I mean, in terms of yourself and the man responsible for your son's death, do you think you'll ever meet again? Do you think that was it? That's done. I've now got to move on and, you know, with those memories, move on. Um, I don't know whether I will meet him again. I don't feel at this point I want to. His future lies in his hands. I'm, I'm offering him the second chance to change. Um, I don't want to hear his name in the papers for hurting or killing somebody else's. And he promises me that that's not going to happen again. And for me, to get to say, like, make a difference, get other families to reach out and approach these people and not let them walk from prison, not knowing the true extent of what they've done, you know, and the impact that it's had on the family with hopes that we can change them as people, you know. As I said, work from the inside out, if need be, you know, 
if we can do it that way and when they come out, they come out better people, then my son's life has got some meaning, his life. You know, he's made a difference to somebody changing. Can I just ask why why you've held on to the poems and the video that this man has sent to you? I mean, I can imagine that you read them once and then you discard them. Because I just feel that maybe at some point the little gift my son's left behind, a beautiful little gift, might want to know a bit more about this person. You're talking about your grandchild? Yeah, um, that hurt her dad, took her dad. Um, and then I can give her that to decide for herself because she might want those answers, you know. It's, it's, and I think that's important, might be important for her, for her mental health and her uh, ability to process what's happened. And how old is she now? Three, about three years old. She'll be nearly three. And she's the most beautiful thing you could ever meet, you know. Um, and like sort of after my son died, two days after he died, um, I found a bucket list in his drawer. And on this bucket list, um, which has been, I found that he wanted to go to see the Northern Lights. And um, in February of this year, um, we, we went to, I don't know, Finland, wherever. And um, I got a small but, um, casket of his ashes. And as I was just spilling these ashes on the snow, you could see the northern lights just brimming in the horizon. And not long afterwards, we were given a whole show of the northern lights. And for me, that brought peace because he was literally telling me now that he was free and he was happy in the universe, you know, because he liked the sun and the moon. He liked space and things like that. Are you a religious person? Do, uh, uh, are you people of faith or religion at all? No, I'm not. I'm not. But I do believe there is something out there after somebody goes. And for the, for me, that brings some sort of sense of knowing sometimes, you, I don't know, something will move and I'll just say, oh, I know who's took that. He's playing a joke on me sort of thing. You know, just just to get me by each day. Well, look, Rachel, it, it's, it's been really interesting talking to you and I, I, I appreciate how difficult and um, hard it can be to, to go back down that memory lane. Um, but you've been brilliant and, and I really do appreciate you sharing your son's story, your story and the story of the perpetrator who, who put you in this position in the first place. So thank you very much. And I'm sure people listening to this will will take um, many different sides. Some will be angry, some will be um, pleased, some will be surprised, some will be shocked, some will be undecided. But I think um, it, it doesn't always matter about what others think. It's what helped you get through what's helping your daughter, your son's father, and, and all those around you that loved and cared for him. So I, I really do appreciate you sharing your story, and I hope it can inspire others to do what you've done. I hope so, because I think whatever little bit we do can make a difference to change these people. We've got to change the world for a better place. And if his memory does that, then I'm a happy, proud mum, which I am anyway. 
If you've listened to this episode on any of the podcast players that allow you to rate and review, please rate and review. And please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. This podcast was brought to you by Your Vision Media Limited, original music by J Row Productions, design work by Studio Minerva, and myself, Raphael Rowe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.